Um, this is Catherine Lambrecht. I do the uh, programs for the Illinois Mycological Association. Welcome to 2021. No idea yet when we'll have do forays, but one of these days we'll get that squared away. Our program tonight is What's in a Name? Understanding Nomenclature yes. and Name Changes. Um, it will be uh, Patrick Leacock, who is a mycologist documenting the mushrooms Hello. of the Chicago region. Patrick is going to give us updates on nomenclature, which is eternally fascinating because it just keeps changing on us. Well, Happy New Year, everyone. This nomenclature talk, I did it originally about four, I don't know, about six years ago. I haven't given it for about three years. So the last several days I spent updating it for you guys. And um, parts of this, I may move over to my website at some point. Um, but I've been interested in nomenclature and um, scientific names and how it all works for about 30 years. So, um, but I still don't know everything that's, things keep changing also. So people have been naming things for, for like forever. Um, classification actually goes back to Aristotle um, more than uh, 2000 years ago. Um, this little cartoon here is from one of the videos that I have listed on a web page I put together with um, other resources and YouTube videos and things for you to see that are on this topic. So um, I'll put that link in um, the chat for in a minute. So this video is, this uh, cartoon is on, the fungus is complaining he doesn't want to go in the box with the plants because he's a fungus. So there's a whole bunch of other stuff online you can um, see that's related to taxonomy and classifications and nomenclature. And I put a selection of it on a, a webpage that's on um, michaelguide.com slash fun name. Um, if you go to my homepage at the very bottom where it lists programs, you'll see the announcement for tonight. And then there's a link there that goes to this page. So names, there's different kinds of names. We use a lot of common names for things like hen of the woods or sheep's heads or ram's heads or maitake or whatever you want to call it. Um, but we have a scientific name, Grifola frondosa. So common names are, are useful within whatever language or part of the country or part of the world you live in, but they may not be usable, usable around the whole world. So we have scientific names that are um, there's supposed to be one scientific name per organism, per species. And then that name is the same for everyone around the world. So you can communicate about a species by using the scientific name. So all the information we have on something like Hen of the Woods is tied to that name or its um, earlier names. Um, so that's a way, that's our um, door into the literature is by the scientific name. So taxonomy includes several different aspects of this whole system. So um, taxonomy is working with naming and defining and classifying uh, organisms. Um, alpha taxonomy is finding, naming and describing species. That's basically um, getting our species figured out. And then beta taxonomy is, support, is sorting species into um, genera and families and the classification system. And then parts of this are nomenclature, which is a set of rules for how we 
give things names and how we can change the names if we need to. Identification is the process of sticking a name on something. So like at a foray or a meeting, somebody brings in a mushroom and we can identify it, put a, a name on there with what we think it is. And then classification, like I said, is putting them into the categories. Um, there's two terms that I'm gonna use a lot, taxon or taxa. Um, a taxon is a group of related things. So it's not just a species, it could be a genus or a family or the kingdom. So any level of classification be, can be referred to as a taxon and plural is taxa. And then a phylogeny is some sort of diagram, um, diagram representing um, how we think things are related. And the phylogenies that are used a lot um, currently are based on DNA sequencing of one or more genes um, so a lot of our work now in figuring out how things are related is based on molecular um, information. Um, names, uh, species names are based on a type. So, and this is where taxonomy overlaps with nomenclature, because when you name a new species, uh, one of the rules is you have to designate a type. There's different kinds of types, um, holotype and lectotype, neotype, whatever. I won't get into that. You can look at that on Wikipedia or somewhere, but a type specimen represents that name. So in that photo, um, Dennis Desjardins is holding his specimen of Spongiforma uh, talandica, and that specimen is the collection that he picked to represent that species that he published. So any questions about that species goes back to that one collection, and you compare your material to that one collection or the sequences and information from that collection to um, see if your thing is the same as, as his spongiforma or not. Um, so, um, and the other thing, the higher levels, a genus has a species as the type. So the genus Agaricus has the species Agaricus campestris as the type for that genus. And then a family is typically based on a genus and the family name like Agaricaceae is usually derived from the genus name. Um, to to um, designate a type and describe a new species, there's some rules on how you do that. It's generally in a publication that's available. Um, the previous rule was it had to be in print and like in a journal or some kind of printed material that was distributed to you know, libraries and universities, whatever. Um, the new rule is that it can be published online in some kind of ex, um, recognized publication that has an ISBN number. Um, so that loosened up the rules on publishing, so you can now publish online. Our new Chantrell in Chicago, the Cantrell of Chicago instance was published um, old style in a journal, Mycologia, and this illustration here shows the part of the paper that was shows the required part for um, describing a new species. So at the top left, we have the species name, Cantharella chicagoensis. We have the authors that worked on it. We have SPNOV, which means uh, species nova, which means it's a new species, which signals in this paper that this is a description of a new species. We refer to some figures and then there's the Michael Bank number there. This is a unique worldwide number for that species. And that number is tied to this species name, this taxon name. 
Um, and that you can use that number to look it up online. Then there's a typification where you designate the type specimen. So there's a little paragraph there that says where that specimen was collected. Um, and then it has holotype and it says F. F is the herbarium code for the Field Museum of Natural History. And then there's the um, herbarium accession number there, the C020 number there. And then we have the GenBank accessions. That's the online um, database for sequences. So we have three sequences of the DNA there that you can look up for reference. The other part is the diagnosis on the right, upper right. The diagnosis used to be half, uh, pre, uh, previously it had to be in Latin. Um, and the, um, <clears throat> a recent change to the code, um, the diagnosis or description can now be in Latin or in English. Um, so that was loosened up. The uh, one thing I don't quite like is um, because it now says the diagnosis or description can be in Latin, some people when they publish new mushroom species do not bother to write a little one paragraph diagnosis on the key characters for that species. They have all the characters in, you know, four, five, six, or seven paragraphs, but they don't have a, a summary diagnosis. So, um, I wish that was a requirement they had to put a summary diagnosis. But anyway, um, these are parts of the uh, rules on how to um, describe a new species. And the minimum diagnosis for some of these things published online is see the DNA sequence. It's different from related species. They don't say any characters other than it has a different DNA sequence. So, and they don't have a photo because it might be something microscopic. So some of these new species have very minimal um, information for the new species. Um, you probably know the classification system um, from kingdom down to species. And then we have the new level above that of domain for, um, for eukaryotes. Fungi are a kingdom in the eukaryotes. Um, fungal, um, classification names, the endings differ a bit from botanical names. Um, the endings there in red are what we use for fungi, mycota, mycetes, aeles, and ACE are endings for those um, phylum, class, order, and family. So why do we use scientific names? Um, it, there's several reasons. We have st stability in mind. Um, a scientific name, like I said, is one name represents one species. And we have a system of nomenclature to regulate how that name is changed or um, published and so forth. Um, clarity, um, if you have one name, then everybody knows what you're talking about. And you can look at the literature in any language because the scientific name is in Latin. So it's, it's a standardized name. Um, and then there's supposed to be only one unique name per species. And then um, its simplicity, the species name is a, generally a two word, uh, what we call binomial. Um, and we'll talk about that in a minute here. So part of this, uh, the main part of this talk is to explain how names are um, designated and different examples of why they change. Um, most names that change nowadays is because 
we are gathering more and more information about the species and we're finding out that there's actually more species than we realized before. So we need to put new names on new species. And that means sometimes um, a genus gets a species or a genus gets split. So for example, honeycaps got split up um, a couple decades ago when Tom Volk and other people figured out um, our malaria melia, um, the name we are using for honeycaps was actually like 12 different species. So we have 12 or 14 or more species of honeycaps now in the US um, than we did before. So that's splitting where you realize the species is actually multiple cryptic or hidden species and we split them out. And that's what's going on now with um, chanterelles and lots of other groups. There is some lumping where species that were described multiple times, DNA sequencing of representatives of those different species are found out that they actually are all the same um, organism or species. So we lump names together when we think they represent the same taxon. Um, genus and family names and so forth are also getting split and lumped as we figure out how to classify things. Um, not so much of concern for mushrooms is this other problem with um, asexual fungi that are described with an asexual or anamorph name versus the sexual or telomorph name. Um, so a lot, lot of molds like penicillium um, are asexual, but some of them have been tied to a sexual stage, which has a different species name. And um, so par part of the newer code change was to uh, regulate that, that there's only one name for a species, regardless of whether it has an asexual or sexual form. So that's, um, I'm not going to really mention that. There's a video discussing that if you want to see that. So a scientific name is basically um, two or three parts. The first part is the genus, which is a group of species that hope, hopefully they're related. So the example here is our Flamulina lutepiece mushroom. It's a gilled mushroom. Uh, flamulina means uh, like a little flame. It's diminutive for flamula. And then there's a genus here, Tilia. That's the genus name for um, our basswood trees. So this flamulina grows on Tilia as a, a woody substrate or food source. So the species name actually has three parts. People it's called a binomial, so you think it has two parts, but there's actually three parts to it uh, for a, a scientific name. So you have the genus part, you have the genus, and then the specific epithet is the second word, and that's um, lowercase. The genus name is uppercase, it's capitalized. <coughs> so the specific epithet, the second word, um, you can think of it as an adjective modifying the genus name. The genus name is a noun. And it's Latinized, so that it follows Latin rules of um, spelling as word endings and so forth. Um, but the third part for his scientific name is the author. So you can actually have multiple names that are the same homonyms, but they have different authors. So they're actually different taxa. Um, but our velvet stem was first called Agaricus. Uh, Volutipes uh, by um, Curtis back in 1782. So the full species name there is Agaricus Volutipes Curtis, and then the publication and the year are given there. 
So the specific epithet is an adjective on the genus, and you can have the same epithet for different mushrooms or different plants or different animals and so forth. Um, so you, it's the combination that makes the species along with the author. So we've got four different mushroom names here that all use Ensculentum as a epithet, but the authors are different and the genus name is different. But, and they're, Esculent means edible, but Gyrometra is not quite as edible as some other things. Um, homonyms, uh, that means the same name. So if you look um, online on names, you'll see that Agaricus piperatus was actually published a bunch of different times by different people. So the first one was by Linnaeus, that's the L. Um, Linnaeus is abbreviated with an L in 1753. So that's Agaricus piperatus, which is now uh, Lactarius piperatus. The other um, names that were the same after that are um, labeled as being illegitimate because they're later homonyms. So they're the same um, species names. So we can't use them because we want one unique name per species. So we can't use multiple names for different species. So Garicus piperatus by Linnaeus wins out over these other later published names. Now here's a name change. So that Agaricus falutipes, the velvet stem, <coughs> Singer, Rolf Singer moved it into Flamulina where it still is today. He did that back in 1951. The publication date for the journal is 1949. So sometimes you'll see two different years given. The one in parentheses is the effective publication and the one in the brackets is the actual publication date on the journal or paper. Um, so sometimes they don't agree. Um, so Rolf Singer moved it into Flamulina. Um, so then we add his author name on the end. So we have Curtis who named Volutipes and Singer who moved it into Flamulina. So the Agaricus Volutipes name from Curtis becomes what we call the Bassionym, um, which means the base name, base name. That's the original name for that species. So we have here Flamulina Volutipes now. And if you look online, you'll see there's other synonyms for that name. This first uh, group of names are the homotypic synonyms. That means those are based on the same type. In this case, they're based on Curtis's Agaricus volutipes. And if you look down that list, uh, the first list there, they all say volutipes and they all say Curtis in parentheses. Um, so these are all based on that same species um, concept. And different authors have moved them into different genus names or genera over the years because people change their idea of how mushrooms are related. So they keep moving things around. Um, and you can see that um, Flamulina in this case was the latest um, transfer by Singer. But sometimes there's transfers to new genera that don't stick because um, there's no rules on which names here to use other than you need to use a name that's valid and legitimate. So all those different synonyms there from Agaricus down to Flamulina are all legitimate uh, valid names. You can use any of those names you want, but for communication, it makes no sense to use Flamulina because that's our understanding of where it fits in the classification of the genera. And then at the bottom, we have heterotypic. That means a different type. And you can see those epithets are different and the authors are different. So these are other species that were named that people later on decided they also represented Flamulina volutipes. So they become synonyms of 
um, flymulina volupes, but they're not based on the same type. So they might have different type specimens, or, uh, but they definitely have different um, concepts um, published at a different time. Um, some names never change, we hope. Um, there's three examples here, uh, Schizophyllum, uh, Marcella, and Gustaceps, um, Anima Ammonita bisporidra. But I was thinking the other day that um, Pex, um, Marcella, and Gustaceps was used as a synonym for under the European name Marcella elata, but we, then we figured out with DNA that Pex species is separate from the European species, so now we use Pex name again. And I'm sure Ammonita bisporidra was lumped into some Ammonita varosa or other thing by some people, but now we realize that it is a separate species. So, so that's uh, a couple names that are still used the way they were originally published. There's no, they haven't been moved to any other genus. So this, all this naming system um, goes back to Linnaeus and the scientific names were um, used more than hundred years before Linnaeus, but Carl Linnaeus was the first one to really push um, the usage of binomial nomenclature and a cl his classification system. So his publication, Spe Species Plantarum, more than 200 years ago, really stuck this classification and binomial system into um, standard usage. So before this, before we had binomials, the two name system, we had, um, we had genus names a long time ago, but they were, the genus name was follow, followed by a Latin description, by basically a bunch of adjectives after the name. So there's that example there of solanum for the tomato. So we have solanum, cale, inermi, herbaceo, folius, anatus, incisus, racimus, simplicibus, and I probably butchered this pronunciation. But anyway, um, we have a long descriptive name and as people were finding and describing more things, those descriptions had to get longer to separate the different species apart. And Linnaeus was the first one to say, let's use a, uh, a one word um, descriptor after the genus to make this binomial. And that's what's stuck. So now we have Solanum uh, lycopersicum for the tomato. And we have Agaricus campestris for the regular field mushroom. The problem with Linnaeus though, is he was focused on plants. He did describe a lot of animals, even from um, the US or America, I should say. Um, but he was mostly focused on plants. He only published 89 fungi in um, 11 genus names. So he didn't have very many fungi in his system at that time. So uh, most of our fungus names come from people after um, Linnaeus, but you can recognize his genus names here, we, we use all of them except Helvella has a spelling change. But Agaricus, he put everything in there that had gills. Boletus was everything with pores. That included polypores, which got split out. So over the years, these genera got split more and more and more. So we have a lot more than 11 genus names now, obviously. So Carl Linnaeus started that binomial nomenclature but there's two other later authors that published major works for um, fungi. Um, Christian Persoon did the um, Synopsis Methodica Fungorum in 1801. And his publication, we use his names for rusts, smuts, and gastromycetes like puffballs. 
And then we have Elias Magnus Fries, who published Systema Fungorum and Elenchus Fungorum. There's a couple volumes to that. Um, so most of our mushroom names come from Fries, from those two publications. And there was a period in time where the nomenclature system, um, the starting date for all the names we used for mushrooms and fungi started with Fries. And then at some point for, because the fungal nomenclature became part of uh, botanical or plant nomenclature. Uh, plant nomenclature started with Linnaeus. So we start, we changed our starting point back to Linnaeus. But the problem is um, there were names that were used by other people before Freeze and Pursuit, and we wanted to keep the names by Freeze and Pursuit. So these two publications by Pursuit and Freeze became what are called sanctioning works, uh, which I'll show in a second. The, um, early, these early species publications were really short. You can see in the red box there how short that description is for uh, Daedalia quercina. And uh, Noah, yes, um, Daedalia is named after um, Daedalus, the um, architect that designed the maze for the Minotaur. Um, so Linnaeus had um, Agaricus quercinus and then Pursun moved it into um, uh, Daedalus or Daedalia. Um, but you can see in the red box, that's the description by Pursun. And then the um, things indicated by blue arrows, those are all various synonyms that these early authors were listing as being the same species. So these are actually names that were and descriptions that were published for that same species at an earlier date. So it's kind of tying the old literature into the current new name. So as some of you know, we have this big uh, code of nomenclature for um, botany, which got renamed um, the International Code of Nomenclature for Algae, Fungi, and Plants. Mycologists have been flexing their muscles the last few decades, so they're getting more recognition in the botanical code, and that was one of the things that caused the name change. And also, um, mycologists wanted to do a few things differently, so some of their changes got into the botanical code rather than the mycologists deciding to jump ship and develop their own code. So right now, fungi are still part of the botanical code. Um, and the most recent version is 2018, it's online. Um, it's basically a big legalese document that explains all the rules on um, naming things and changing names and the rules that apply to figure out which name you use if you have competing names. So here's the thing with Elias Fries. So the names that Fries and Pursun had in their publications are what we call sanctions. So those are names that we use instead of any prior names. So normally you use the earliest published name all the way back to Linnaeus. We ignore names that are used before Linnaeus. We use them if they're published again or used after Linnaeus. But the names used by Fries and Pursun, we want to hang on to those names, otherwise we lose a lot of the names that we prefer to use. So these are given special status in mycology um, and they're called sanctioned, which means these names win out over any earlier name. So like Agaricus campestris was described or published by Linnaeus and it was also published by Fries in his work. So um, it's sanctioned. And there's a designator for that, the colon mark there and then the abbreviation for freeze or pursuit is put after that author name. 
And uh, one thing I don't quite like, but I guess it makes sense, is nowadays the new rules and nomenclature for fungi with the sanctioning is you don't have to show that, you don't have to show freeze or pursue anymore um, when you show the author, uh, when you show the authority for the species name. So I think that kind of loses some information, but anyway, it makes it simpler. Uh, uh, part of it makes sense. You can always look these up online and figure out that they were sanctioned. So um, there's three different databases online that um, were chosen recently to be the official um, repositories for taxon names for fungi and fungus-like organisms. So this includes apparently water molds and slime molds and things. There's two that are in English, Index Fungorum and Mycobank. Um, they're run by different people. And there's a third one that was developed by um, Chinese scientists that's in Chinese. And I tried to access it the other day to get a screenshot of it, but it uses Flash, um, which is a, um, a web technology that has been um, basically um, downgraded. It's not upgraded anymore. It's not considered safe. So I don't know if the, hopefully at some point the Chinese site will be reprogrammed so it doesn't use Flash and be accessible, but I can't access it right now. But anyway, Index Fungorum and Michael Bank, I use those both a lot. <coughs> Index, Index Fungorum is much easier to use. I'm going to show you how that looks. Michael Bank um, got a facelift a reprogramming um, front end to their database and it's um, it it works better in some ways but it's also harder to use in some other ways because it uses pop-up windows so you can't have multiple pages of Michael Bank open at the same time and compare different things um, you, you have to go back and forward with um, pop-up windows and I don't like that I don't think it's, it's, that's quite accessible but anyway maybe they'll change that but both of them are useful um, they're supposed to be synchronized, but the synchronization isn't 100% up to date. So sometimes you'll see a name show on one um, before it shows up on the other one. But both of these, plus the Chinese site, are the three um, online sites where you can register a new name. And when you publish a new name, you need a registration number, that unique, that unique number from one of these three um, repositories of names. So here's how Index Fingorum works. So, um, your homework assignment is to look up uh, some mushroom you like, the scientific name, look it up on here and poke around in Index Fungorum and see what you can find out about that particular species. So in this case, we're gonna look at that um, Daedalia corsina. So you can type in the genus and then um, <clears throat> you don't have to type in the full name, but you do need to um, type in part of a name uh, if you're looking for a particular species, you can type in the genus and then the first part of the species name and then hit the, hit the search button. And then you find things that match that. So you can see at the very top here, we have a Daedalia quelettii, which is a different species, but the rest of those are Daedalia quercina. And if you look down the list, you can see there's a lot of forms, subspecies and varieties. So this is a variable fungus that's been given various varieties and forms and so forth that we can pretty much ignore we don't tend to use forms and varieties and subspecies as much anymore with fungi. One thing that Index Fungorum likes, which I don't totally like, is they automatically, this Index Fungorum database auto, automatically makes any variety or subspecies or form 
a synonym of the full um, of just the species. So it kind of downgrades all those. The red arrows, they're pointed to different things. So there's two different kinds of links on this page. There's a link to the species there on the left, the Dahlia corsina. And on the right, those green links go to a different part of the database that's a synonym that has synonyms. So we'll look at the, the species page first. So here's a species record. And at the top, you can see the taxon name, Didalia corsina. We can see the authors, the publication for Pursuit and the year. And um, one difference between Index and Gorham and Microbank is Index and Gorham gives the standardized abbreviations for journals, um, which is what publications also do. But Microbank gives you the full names of the full name of the journal, like Synopsis, Methodica, from Gorham in this case. And then this shows the special um, status that this name is sanctioned by Freeze. Linda says that um, Index and Gorham is moved to Royal Botanic Gardens Q. Um, so that the site has been moved around a bit because the main person that runs it, Paul Kirk, has changed jobs and positions. So um, the database system was moved to the institution where he's employed. I'm, I'm assuming that's what changes there. Um, the other thing listed here is the base union, the original name, Agaricus corsinus. And at the bottom, uh, down the lower part of the page, you'll have the classification uh, for family up to kingdom. And what I learned recently reading online was that the um, classifications used, the classification system used here on index fungorum is based on dictionary of the fungi, which is only online now, and that's not something I look at. So this classification system at the bottom there may not match up with the classification system you see in um, journal publications. Um, it's, it's not, um, it lags behind in getting updated. Um, also, if you see that insert a status in a classification, that means it's an uncertain placement. So that means we don't know where to assign the species, or in this case, we don't know where to assign polyporales within the agaricomyces. Then there's three kinds of links here. Well, more than three, but there's the Dedalia link. That goes to the genus record or actually it searches for that genus. Um, then you can go to that record. The um, basinum link goes to the taxon information for that basinum name. And then the link at the bottom there goes to that synonymy list. The other link that I use now um, that's useful is that on the right there, it says page image for protolog. This is a photograph of a very old publication um, that shows that species. Sometimes it's the original publication, sometimes it's a, a, a list like Sicardo's list, but it shows you um, some old information for that species, which can be useful. But um, a lot of these tend to be in Latin. Here's synonyms for um, Didalia. You can see the bassinium there is agaricus and then the different homotypic synonyms, which are all based on the same type. So they have Corsina and Linnaeus there as authors. Um, and then the Dahlia Corsina is the um, current name we use. Um, if you go to that synonymy list, then you get a longer list. Um, and this list is made up of both the homotypic synonyms I just showed, plus the heterotypic ones that are on different types. So if we um, delete the, um, from this picture, if we delete the homotypic synonyms, then we're left with 
these heterotypic synonyms. And you can see that these all have different species epithets and different authors, different publications. So these are um, examples where that the Idalia quercina polypore was, had a name published by somebody else um, in a different journal. And so these are synonyms of the same species, but different names for it. And the one we use is Didalia corsina because um, it was an early name that was sanctioned by Free. So it wins out against all these other competitor names. Um, some uh, fungi like this Urpex are very variable. So they have lots of synonyms. Um, so people over the, over the years have figured out that all these different names actually refer to the same thing. Um, I'm gonna show two examples of the language from the nomenclature code. Here is part of article 11 on priority, two different parts of that article. Um, the first one is um, each family or lower rank taxon with a particular circumscription, position and rank can bear only one correct name. Um, special exemptions are, exceptions are for nine families and this is in plants. So you may know the sunflower family or the aster family is you can call it the Asteraceae or you can call it the Compositae because the Compositae is a, um, a family name that goes way back for the composites, but it's not, doesn't form, uh, doesn't follow the um, formal ending um, like Asteraceae is, but they decided to conserve these particular nine well-known family names um, to not upset everybody. And then, um, for any part three there, any taxon from family to genus, the correct name is the earliest legitimate one with the same rank, except in cases of limitation of priority by conservation or protection, um, or also in um, by sanctioning. So there's there's exceptions to the rules. So, so um, if you want to use a particular name, but it has a previous name that um, has priority, you can get around that rule by um, conserving a name that you want to use over an earlier name. And here's an example. So we have different people using the Ammonita, the name Ammonita for different concepts for different genera. Uh, there's three examples here. Um, and the one, the, the, uh, the one we use is the one by Pursun, um, the third one there from 1797. But there's an earlier name by um, other people that has priority. But we want to use Pursun's concept for Ammonita because the other concept is actually Agaricus because it has Agaricus campestris as the type. So um, that would then compete with the Agaricus genus. So we want to use Pursun's concept for Ammonita because we want to use that for Ammonitas. So that has a special status of being conserved. So at the end of the code, there's a big list of conserved and rejected names uh, for fungi. So here's an ex interesting thing, which um, not everybody thinks about, but <coughs> over the years, these um, genera are split up into smaller and smaller groups like boletes and um, agaricus and polypores and stuff. Um, things get split out uh, out of these bigger genera. So like agaricus, was originally everything with gills. And over time, um, different things get split out like Ammonita and you know, Pluteus and um, Merasmus and whatever. Um, so if you look at these synonyms here, 
Um, some of these are weird like fungus and there's actually a new rule in the code where you can't use a, a name like fungus as a genus name. And there's hypophyllum and myces and pratella and saliota, all these genus names you've probably never seen. If you do have older mycological books from 100 years ago or so, you will see the genus name saliota because that was um, used for agaricus at that time. But part of the code um, says now that you can't have a new genus name which includes the type species for a genus that already exists. So we have agaricus with agaricus campestris. So any new genus name that includes agaricus campestris um, can't compete against agaricus. So these other names that came up later um, are, are, are not usable. Um, so we keep agaricus to represent agaricus campestris and anything that we think is related to agaricus campestris. So that's one way to make things stable. You can't keep moving things around. Something has to stay behind in the original genus. Um, here's a couple other examples of genus names. So there was a genus Flamula, which predates me, um, used um, <coughs> 1925, that's a while ago, that's about 100 years ago. We had this genus named Flamula, which was used for uh, various mushrooms. And this uh, article here by Kaufman um, talks about how Flamula, the concept for Flamula isn't tied down and he's not quite sure how to fix that. It's a bit of a messy concept. Well, it turns out we can't use Flamula anyway because there's a plant with the genus named Flamula, which is in the buttercup family. And Flamula, the plant Flamula is actually a synonym for uh, rhinoculus, the buttercup. There was a Flamula rhinoculus that is now a synonym of rhinoculus Flamula. It's kind of a funny occurrence there, but um, we can't use Flamula for a mushroom anyway because it's an illegitimate name because there's a previous genus name um, for Flamula. And in this case, it's a plant. So there are some other cases where we, there's um, mushroom genus names we can't use because they already exist for um, a plant. And in this case, the, the species um, Flamula is based on is now in Foliota. So we have uh, Flamula alnicola is now Foliota alnicola. <coughs> Here's an example of lumping. So there's an article here by um, Kaufman talking about um, Genopolis autumnalis, which is now uh, Gallerina. It was originally Agaricus autumnalis. And uh, one thing I noted here reading this the other day was that um, Peck reports a fatal case of the poisoning from this Gallerina. And I didn't remember that. I was um, told or heard some point that um, we didn't know it was poisonous until like the 1940s or 50s or something, but apparently um, Peck knew about it uh, quite a long time ago. But anyway, in this case, um, we have different names for Gallerina. And if you look in your older mushroom books, you'll see it under Gallerina autumnalis because that's a, that's a Peck name. So we are using Peck's name for, their, for our American version. Well, it turns out when the DNA is sequenced that um, autumnalis and marginata are the same species based on DNA sequencing from the American material and the European material. This was done by uh, Grove Gould and, and colleagues quite a while ago. So now uh, your, new book, your newer books will show Gallerina marginata. But um, 
people weren't quite sure before DNA sequencing whether things were the same or not. Part of it goes back to very old descriptions and black and white photos and stuff where um, concepts were more, fuzz, more fussy and there were differences in what we thought the cap surface and the gills and spores and things were like um, to really be sure whether, they're whether they are the same or not. In this case, they're the same. So we lumped them back together and Calorina marginata is the name we use because that's the oldest name that had this um, valid. Uh, here's the synonymy on species um, index fungorum. And one thing you'll note here, um, every time, well, not every time, Several times a year when I look at stuff on index and gorm, I find things that are still either not updated or errors on index and gorm or microbank. And people are um, contacting these database um, people every day or usually, mostly every, I mean, nearly every day to um, point out um, things that need corrections or updating, uh, especially with new journal papers and so forth. But uh, for some reason, um, when I made, the, the time I made this slide, um, index and Gorham had marginata and autonalis as synonyms, but they didn't have um, organensis and venata lumped in, in there uh, yet. I don't, I'm not sure if they are now or not. Um, so um, these online databases are very useful, but they are not 100% um, reliable. They're about 99% reliable. Um, this is um, a little cartoon I made for uh, turkey tail. This shows all the genus names that it was put in. It started with Boletus because um, for some reason, yeah, Boletus was everything with pores. So all the polypores that were named early on started out in Boletus. And then um, turkey tail got moved into Poria. And then some strange person put it in Agaricus for unknown reasons. And then um, it was interesting, Paulet put it in Agaricus suber, which is a genus for <clears throat> Daedalia corsina, and it's only got three species in that genus, one of them being another Trimedes. So that was that was a concept that didn't last very long. And then it got moved to Plipparis, it was in there for a long time. And then Cystotrema, which is now used for um, other kinds of polypore and crust things that we don't really know. Polystictus was a favorite genus for quite a while. You'll see that in some older books. Um, I haven't seen Hanstenia in a book. Coriolis, you'll see online. Trimedes versicolor is, you'll see online under Coriolis versicolor, especially in Asian medical publications. For some reason, they like to keep using that name. Microporus hasn't been used much, but now it's in Trimedes versicolor. Uh, the, the funny uh, weird thing is um, Curtis Gates Lloyd was the one that moved it into Trimedes. So we have Lloyd to thank or moving in, into being the first person to publish it in Tremedes where it is now. Um, Lloyd is a whole nother story. Um, so Tremedes is one of these really interesting cases that has a very nice case study done by the Polypete Project people. There's a group of um, European and American <coughs> authors working together. They had several years working on polypores and um, some of them came over from Europe to um, some forays in um, the US here in Canada. And they came to uh, two different NAMA forays. So that was fun to interact with them, got to meet them. And then um, they did this really nice publication and made a web page also for this Tremedes project they had. 
So their publication and um, thing was looking at Tremedes and things related to Tremedes and deciding, do we wanna keep splitting Tremedes or do we wanna lump it into one more stable genus concept? So Tremedes is the, the things there in that green box and you can see the things that are kind of related like um, Ganoderma and some other polypores um, and so forth up there. And then other polypores like Hen of the Woods down below and then um, other um, related things in the polypore clade. So we're gonna look at the things in the green box now. And this is, I'm gonna move this thing out of the way here. So this is the five genus option that they talk about. So if you wanna split this group into five genera, this is where the species would be. So Tremedes is based on Suaviolans, which is in the upper part here. It's a sweet smelling uh, Tremedes that's pretty rare. It's not very common around here. But you can see Versicolor is up here near the top in Tremedes. And then Lenzites has been used for these ones, some of these ones that have pores that look like gills. <clears throat> and then Coriolopsis has been used for Polyzona, which is a more tropical thing. And then we have Artolenzites for Tremedes elegans. And then at the bottom, we have Pycnoporus for these interesting Tremedes that have red pigment. But actually, if you look at them microscopically, that's the only difference um, is the pigment color. The, the, the morphology of these is the same as the other Tremedes. It's just the color difference. So that's one option is you have five different genera. Um, but if you want to split that up, you can have 10 or more genera. Um, and they argued against this because anytime you find a new thing in this group, you would have to sequence it to figure out where which genus it fits in. <clears throat> if you have a lot of small genera, then you have to sequence it to really figure out for sure where it goes. So, um, and even Tremedes itself has been, was split up in the past because um, Tremedes versicolor was in the genus Coriolis, so that only fits those top four species. Tremedes conchifer is a very weird Tremedes that has an asexual um, cups that have splash cups for asexual spores. So that was um, put in the genus Poronigulus. And Tremedes itself is based on Suaviolans. And then, so if you split up Tremedes, you'd have to get a new genus for Hirsuta and Velosa. Um, so they argued against this because you'd have to keep coming up with new genus names for some of these things that fall in between the different genus concepts. So they argued for having just one genus for this particular group of things and call it Tremedes because that's the oldest genus name available. I'm happy with this. Um, one, what it, some people are bothered because Pycnoporus, these red things, um, are now called a Tremedes. Um, that's the, probably the only upsetting thing to some people. And then here I made a phylogeny on a piece of cardboard and brought it to the field museum and brought out specimens for all these different species and put them here to show you what they all look like, including some of the tropical ones that we have in our collection. And then that big thing on the top right is Tremedes esculi, which is a species that was um, described a long time ago, but lumped into elegans Turns out it's a separate species, so it's that name was uh, resurrected uh, for use again, and it showed up in the and showed up in um, Chicago area a few years ago as their first record. It's moving north 
it's a southern species that's moving north. And that other thing, um, Trimedes gibosa, the lower right, um, is another polypore that came here from Europe. It's not, we don't think it's native to America. It's a European species that came over at some point farther back and is spreading. Um, it wasn't in um, Chicago area, uh, I would guess maybe 30, 40, 30, 40 years ago, it wasn't here. But here's a, a variety of uh, things that are now all in Tremedes. There's a lot of name changes with bolates, and I have not been following that, so I'm not going to really, I'm not going to talk to about it. But here's one example of Boletus pecchii um, getting changed four times over the years. And some of these, one reason I'm not bothering to look at bolate names is um, some of them change every year. So, or, you know, change frequently, like 2014 and 2015. Um, so some of this is, I think, getting too, um, too much splitting. The, the reason why these things are getting all split up is that um, Boletus is based on um, Boletus edulis, the, you know, the king bolete, the really good one. And the problem is a lot of the other things in Boletus are separated from Boletus edulis by things like Strobilomyces and Telopolis and some other um, genus names that we want to keep. So if we want to keep um, Lexinum and Tylopolis and Strolomyces, then we have to split up all the Boletus into lots of different separate genera. So that's um, what's causing the mess in that case. Now I'm going to show you some examples. This is an example that came out, um, seems to be, um, well, no, it's not totally settled, but it came to a nice resolution recently that I'm happy with. Anyway, this is a, a tale of three hyphaloma or should I say Drosophila, or should I say uh, Satharella? These things have been moving around over the years. But on the bottom there, we have two of these species that are in the Chicago area, the one on the left there and the one on the right. Uh, Michael Quo now has pages for both of these species. You can look them up. So there's these three species here that are all very similar. There's actually other, a few other related species. Two of these were they both started out in Agaricus, uh, Lacryma bundus and Valutinus. Um, both started in Agaricus by different people and then got moved to different genera over the time. Um, and then they got um, in Lacrimaria, you can see there 1887 and 1925. And then they got put into Satharella. Um, they were in Satharella for quite a long time. And then when we started DNA sequencing, people figured out these are not in the Satharella genus, we got to call them something else. So what happens in that case is you look for older genus names that these things belong to, that they're published in already. And you go back and see which the earliest genus name that you can use for that. So Lacrimaria um, fit the bill for this. So these are both now in Lacrimaria. The thing is that um, some people think these are the same species, <clears throat> but some of the recent um, molecular work Points, the, um, points toward these things being actually more than one species. So here is um, part of a tree from a paper by Maj Padamsi and um, co-authors showing um, down there in the bottom part, you can see Lacrimaria velatina shows up three different places there along with Echinoseps and Lacrimabunda. So we got these two Lacrimaria and then we got the Sathrella Echinoseps, and it's like, what? why is there another Satharella in there? And then above that, we can see these other Satharellas, the 
Spidiacea or what I call the rhodospora group. Um, we have some of these species in the Midwest. They're very interesting because they have red spores. Instead of dark purple brown spores, they have red, reddish spores. So these are really uh, cool to find. Um, so that's another reason to do spore prints on some of these little brown mushrooms as you get some interesting discoveries that way. But anyway, both of these groups are not part of Satharella. So they also have to come up with some genus name for these red spored ones. But um, they found Satharella echinoseps down here with these lacrimarias. And um, that's our third lacrimaria. And for the past, I don't know, 10, at least 10 or 15 years, finding both of these things in the Chicago area, I, I already, I always had to look online, it's like figure out which one was which. So this is uh, Lacaria echinoseps here. It's similar looking to Valutina, but it's a little bit bigger, a little bit more scaly, and it tends to be in the woods instead of in urban areas. I was thinking for years, why is this not a lacrimaria? It looks like lacrimaria, the other lacrimaria, and I didn't understand why it was not in lacrimaria. But somebody finally, based on, so you can see that um, back in 2008, Maj said this should be uh, transferred to lacrimaria, but it wasn't transferred until 2019, 11 years later, by um, a guy in Europe, I don't know, Europe or Asia. So finally made it into lacrimaria where it belongs. And then um, last month, Michael Cole finally made a page for it, lacrimaria echinoseps, and I was, uh, told him I was very happy he made a page because I, it's nice to have pages for both of these species. And I told him to link the two pages together because I get them confused. So he did that. So now we have um, the proper home for our lacaria, uh, our lacrimaria echinoseps. Oh, there is one other bolete I'll mention here. Boletus bicolor, that's a really well-known bolete, but there's a lot of uh, species that have been confused with Boletus bicolor. When I was looking on index fungorum earlier on, I noticed that there was also a Boletus bicolor by this other author, I don't know anything about, Roddy, in 1806. And that's an earlier publication than Peck. So it's like, why are we allowed to use Peck's name when there's an earlier name of a different bully with the same name? So that bothered me for a while. And then finally, when Bicolor got moved to um, Barangia, which is one of those genus names you maybe hate, you know, love to hate or whatever, but um, our Bicolor is now in Barangia. And if you look, it's, the bassinum is Suillus bicolor bicunt. So because bicolor by Peck, Boletus bicolor name by Peck is illegitimate, they had to go to some other um, available, the next earliest available name, um, which was Suillus bicolor. So they used that as the bassinum for this Barangia bicolor. And that was 2015, so that's only about five years ago. Um, you can see Quo's um, species page on this. He just has several paragraphs discussing bicolor and some of the taxonomic uh, things with this species. Here's another page from the um, part of a page from the code. This is also dealing with priority. One interesting thing that I didn't realize till fairly recently was a name doesn't have priority outside the rank at which it is published. So some species are described as varieties and then they're moved up to species rank 
And it's a courtesy to use the variety epithet when you move it up to a species, but you're not required to do so because that variety name only has priority at the, the rank of variety. So that makes it easier in some cases. You, you don't have to worry about variety names when you're publishing a new species. The other rule here, 11.4, is that any taxon below the rank of genus, which is basically subgenera and species and whatever, the correct name for that is the combination of the final epithet of the earliest legitimate name. That means the earliest available epithet, that second part of the name, of the same rank. So it has to be a species epithet with the correct name of the genus or species to which it is assigned. So the earliest name for a species is going to be the earliest legitimate epithet that can be used in that the genus where you want to stick it. So um, this rule um, comes up a lot when people have to figure out um, which name has priority. So I'll we'll see a couple cases where this applies. So this is a, a new section I'm calling Patrick Investigates um, with some ex a few examples that I've had recently in the last few years where I've spent quite a while of time digging down deep into this nomenclatural mess of some of these things to figure out what's going on. And then I email a couple of colleagues that are much smarter than I am on nomenclature and see what their opinion is and get some clarification on what is really happening with these names. So this is a case I found 2018. So um, I've been banking species pages for my website and I made a species page for this uh, toothy crust called um, Etherodon fimbriatum. Originally it was called Stecorinum fimbriatum. So I was making this, working on this page in 2018 and I saw that it was getting moved into Etheriodon based on DNA studies. And then this, I was digging into the literature and available stuff online and I noticed that it was published in Etheriodon as a Etheriodon fimbriatum by um, Zimitrovich in 2018. But looking online with data and papers, it was like, well, when I make this page, I also make a genus page and it's like the genus page was Etheriodon and that genus was named by Banker. And he put Fimbriatum in his genus when he described it. So he had already published the name Etheriodon Fimbriatum. So I was confused, why is Zimitrovich publishing that same combination in 2018 when it was done way back in 1902. So I sent uh, Scott Redhead and Lorelei Novell an email asking them about this and they agreed that Banker, the publication by Banker is valid and should, should have been used. So they contacted Paul Kirk from Index Agorum and he changed it on, um, on Index Agorum and I checked um, recently, and this um, publication by Zermitrovich, this taxon combination is, you can still see it on Microbank, but now it's missing for some reason on Index and Gorm. I think it should still be there because it's a published name, but it's, um, it's illegitimate because it, it's an already, already existing combination. But anyway, that's one thing that was puzzling me a couple of years ago. Um, there's been a problem brewing for quite a number of years um, that I've been following since um, I was looking at Sebacinas and Tremelodendrons in the Chicago area and um, 
They're both gelatinous fungi. And DNA studies showed that actually tremelodendron, these false jelly corals are actually um, mixed in with Sebacina, which is an old, older genus name. So all these tremelodendrons have to get moved into Sebacina and that process is not done. Some of them like tremelodendron meristemoides down there in the bottom right hasn't moved, been moved into Sebacina yet. I mean, um, I could do it on Index Favorum, but um, I don't wanna, um, I don't know, maybe I will. Um, so anyway, these tremelodendrons have been getting moved into Sebacina. So here's your job. So there's these three tremelodendrons there on the right. Well, actually one is a tremella. Um, all three of these we have here in the Midwest. Tremella reticulata is a, a gelatinous, um, uh, mushroom on the ground with hollow tubes. So it's like gelatinous, but has hollow branches, which is pretty cool. Then we have these two tremelodendrons, pallidum and canidum. So your job is to make them, move them into subacina. So what you do, normally you would take that epithet, like reticulata, pallidum, canidum, move them into subacina, change the ending to agree with um, subacina, which is a feminine gender, and um, you have Sebacina reticulata pallida candida. And you put the um, Bassinum author, Berkeley, Bert, or Schweinitz in parentheses, and then you put your name after that or whoever published this new combination. Easy peasy, right? Well, not in this case. So this has made a big mess because um, actually what you have to do, which some people do not do, which makes a mess, is you have to look for competing names. So in the case of our tremella at the top, tremella reticulata, um, if you look down below in the red box, there is also, there's already a Sebacina reticulata by Patchillard. So you can't move the tremella reticulata into Sebacina and call it reticulata because there's a com competing name there. So you have to come up with a new name or which some people do that, but actually what you're supposed to do by the rules is look for the next oldest available valid epithet that you can move into your new genus where you want to stick the thing. Because of that rule, you look for the oldest valid epithet that you can use in that new genus placement. So in this case, with Tremella reticulata, that is Tremella thurasoidea, named by um, Lloyd, the trickster mycologist. So that becomes um, Sebacinus uh, Sprassoidea, which is the name that should be used. The problem with Tremelodendron pallidum is that that name is based uh, on an illegitimate bassinum or um, derived from an illegitimate name. So you can't use the name pallidum because that's an illegitimate name. So what you have to do is look for the next oldest valid one, which is Schweinitzii by Peck, use that. So that one becomes Subacina Schweinitzii instead of Subacina pallidum. Um, and then in the third case, the third case is the biggest mess that I figured out uh, two months ago, um, or I didn't figure it out, but I got some um, input on how to, what the proper thing was. So the problem with these is that people are publishing, moving things around, and either they don't look for these older competing names or the older competing names are not online index index and Gorham or wherever that they're looking. 
Um, so all these names here that I'm showing you on this slide are now in index and quorum. So you can figure out the problems, but um, they may not have all been on there um, like six years ago. So you may not be aware of the actual problem. So in the case, the third case, Tremella dendron candidum, you want to move that into Sebacina, but um, this olive person already has a Sebacina candida. So you can't move Chuinitz candidum into Sebacina candida. That name is already there. So you have to come up with a different name. So what happened was that um, Kirshner and these other people published a, um, they published a new combination, Sebacina candicans, sub, sorry, Sebacina um, Canada, but then that got marked as illegitimate. So they had to name it again. So they came out with another publication and called it pseudo, uh, they called it Sebacina pseudo Canada. That's a replace, a new replacement name. And for reasons I don't remember here, oh, that was in uh, valid. I got the note down there. That was invalid. That name was invalid because they didn't follow the rules on citing the bassinum. So technically it was not published properly. So they can't use that name. So then they published, um, they had an erratum to give a new name, Sebacina confusa, which I figured out with the help of um, Scott and Lorelei is a superfluous name, which means it's um, it's an unnecessary name because there's another epithet you should, a different epithet you should use. So what happens is that you look at the older names that are available. And if you look down this list, there's a Thelephora candicans that Freeze used for the same species to avoid the problem of moving it into um, uh, Thelephora because there was another um, Canada in Thelephora by Schweinitz. So this is really a real mess. But anyway, it turns out candicans is the epithet that you should use for this species when you use, move it into Sebacina because you can't use um, these, you can't use Canada, you can't use um, Pseudo-Canada because you goofed up and you can't use um, uh, Confusa because that's an unnecessary new name. So I checked with Paul, uh, with um, Scott and Lorelei and they agreed and they brought in the expertise of a third person and um, he sorted out that yes, they should be using candy cans. So they um, contacted Paul Kirk to contact these authors to tell them that um, they need to publish a new combination to make this. Here's my email correspondence on this from um, two months ago when I was working on the Sebacina page, updating it. So that email on the, on the far left is my long email of all the details on this problem and then um, the responses to that by um, Scott and Lorelei and then um, Sean Pennycook who I had have not met is in New Zealand. He really sorted out this thing. He's an expert in Friesian um, taxonomy nomenclature and the old names so he was able to sort this out. So I'm very thankful to these nomenclature experts that helped me along every so often. Um, Scott Redhead and Lorelei um, in Canada and out um, in Oregon are my two go-to people. And in this case, they brought in Sean Pennycook, who is a um, expert in nomenclature. And he's in New Zealand. He's been doing mushroom surveys for a very long time. I noticed his, his little um, title he's given himself is 
mycobibliophile, and I think I should adopt that because I, I have a collection of old mushroom books. Um, I, I'm already a research associate. But I want to thank these three people um, for their help. And um, it turns out all three of these people are on the committee, for uh, nomenclature committee for the um, International Botanical Congress. So these three people are um, involved day to day with um, fungal nomenclature and sorting out the code and how to update the code. I have some recent investigations. I have new species pages for you. You can look at those on my website. Those links are in that page I'm providing. Real quick, I want to finish out that there was um, a separate code for animals, a separate code for prokaryotes, a separate code for bacteria and cultivated plants and viruses. So there's, there's not just one code, there's six different codes. Some people want to make one bio code, but that is going to be a major headache because there's about, um, I think I read that there's, um, I forgot if it was a hundred or a thousand genus names of, of fungi and plants that are duplicated by genus names of animals. Here's a couple examples. Astraeus, there's a beetle Astraeus and a, our earth star Astraeus. Zoological code, code does a couple things differently. They have totonyms, which means you can have bison, bison, bison for a subspecies of, of American buffalo, American bison, um, that you can repeat the, the same name um, in the genus and specific epithet. The other examples you may know is Cardinalis Cardinalis for our cardinal and Rattus Rattus for the black rat. Um, there's two different kinds of Lactarius. There's a Lactarius that we have worldwide and in the Chicago area. And there's another Lactarius that's over in the ocean in the Southeast Asia, you know, north of Australia and stuff. And that turns out to be a fish. So there's a Lactarius Lactarius fish and um, another difference in the code here for zoology is apparently um, zoologists were moving species around to different genera so, so often that they came up with a rule that when you show a genus name, when you show a species name, you don't show the author that moved it in that genus. You show the original author and year for the species epithet there, Lactarius, but you don't show who moved it into the, that genus. Um, and I was looking online um, yesterday to try and figure out who actually moved it into Lactarius, and I couldn't find that out. All, all I could find is that uh, Valenciennes, uh, whoever, uh, however you pronounce that guy per, or person, he came up with the Lactarius genus name. So I'm assuming he is the one that moved it into that um, genus, but it's very hard to actually find that out. The other thing I found yesterday poking around to figure out more about this Lactarius fish. Um, I saw in one of the online databases, um, GBIF, there was also a Lactarius torminosus in the, um, the same family or the same fish genus. And I followed the links to this record in um, British Columbia herbarium of Lactarius torminosus, which is showing up online classified as a fish but it's actually the mushroom. Um, so this is a case where a, a herbarium record was brought into a database and they based the classification of the whole record on the genus name, um, ignoring that it was in the kingdom fungi. So you can see in the green box, the original records and, and that they interpreted the um, classification from 
the genus name and they altered it. So um, here's a, a one a kind of funny example. I did email the people yesterday to tell them uh, to fix it. So, um, but this is a case where you will find weird things online because of, we're in the age of databases and um, um, databases are, they, they process data the way they get it. They don't have any intuition or um, subtleties on how, to, how, where things might go. Anyway, I wanna thank you for sticking through this. And um, today I found out that humans have the conservation of status of least concern. And um, I don't think Greg is here, but um, he'll be happy to know that, um, and I'm sure all of you will be happy to know that our species is, um, is not on a threatened or endangered list. Um, but we should um, think about it because we're the only species left in our, our genus currently anyway. Um, so I wanna thank you for that and we'll open it up for um, anybody that has questions. And yes, um, bison, bison, bison is a trinomial because there's three names um, to that. Got a question, you, you're in your talk, you, I was drawn to when you said something has to stay around and I kind of thought about herbarium, this might be more of a herbarium management question, but when a holotype specimen's name is reclassified, what happens to the original holotype's name? Is it, is it changed to reflect its new name? Or would you say that it retains the old name even though it's been reclassified? That's a good question. I think, I think, holotype, I think holotypes keep their original name, but I'm, there's probably a way to stick on the label I don't know if people stick on the label what the current name is. Because everything that's published after that will have the new name and unless they definitely refer to the type specimen of that preceded it then, but then again, when they're publishing, I would think that if they're publishing a new name yeah. based off of it. I don't remember. My guess is that it, it, the label is gonna have the original name on. Sure. And one thing you know, you, and you know that these, these specimens are marked boldly in some red or some other way to show that they're a type and their label is a holotype or whatever they are. Um, Greg isn't here. I don't think Greg's here to back me up, but I think they keep the, the original name on there. I have another. <laughs> <laughs> I I'm, uh, apologize. This went longer than I expected, but um, lots of stuff here. I've got a question. Um, I know for there's a lot more um, hybridization with uh, like between species. So when you're trying to make cladograms and stuff like that, it's uh, a lot less straightforward than it is say for animals for the most part. Um, how do uh, funguses compare? Do we even know like how much funguses are crossing between species and maybe even between genuses? Fungi have a different um, reproductive system than plants and um, animals. Plants, it's easy to hybridize plants because some plants rely on their, for example, flowering plants, they rely on their flower morphology to have specific pollinators to um, ensure that things cross pollinated properly. And you, but you can move pollen around, like especially between orchids, um, you get hybrid species and hybrid genera in orchids. You can do some hybridization with animals uh, like horses and um, donkeys, for example. There isn't, there's very little evidence of hybridization in mushroom species. I think there's a couple cases, but I can't remember them offhand. So um, it doesn't seem to be a problem as such 
in these um, you know, DNA trees or phylogenies. Basically, any specimen of a mush any mushroom specimen you pick up in sequence represents an individual, which represents a population, which represents part of a species. So um, that's where it gets kind of messy is we have to make object um, subjective um, decisions on where we draw the lines between species um, because the DNA sequences aren't going to be uniform across the species for, but they'll be the most similar within a species. Uh, Daniel Lindner from Wisconsin says, it's all up to the curator. Mostly specimens aren't relabeled. It's assumed people look at all synonym possibilities. And that's one thing with um, databases now, herbarium databases, collection databases, and these online databases, you can look up a name and see what the synonyms are and um, um, track down what the other possible names are. So, and the, at the Field Museum, we're not worried about updating the names on all this, our mushroom specimens because we have other things to work, work on, like, you know, accessioning new collections, accessioning new collections. But um, you can use the database system to figure out what the different names are for a particular species. Chat Great. question from Marissa. Uh, prior to DNA sequencing, were new species classified based on their features alone? Yes. Also, do all presumed new species nowadays go through molecular work? No. Publishing new names does not require a DNA sequence. So there's two opposite ends of the spectrum here is um, some people, um, this includes animals and plants and fungi, are still publishing new names without sequencing the organism. Um, hopefully somebody will come along and sequence it at some point. The other job we have to do is sequence fungi that are already named, especially type specimens that are representing particular genera. Because um, you don't know where a species fits <coughs> based on its DNA 100% sure unless you sequence the type species for that genus. So this is a case for some um, complicated um, groups of fungi where um, a lot of uh, like crust fungi, they all look similar. And if you don't sequence the type for a genus, you can't really say where that genus is because some cases you'll sequence the type and find out it's actually um, inside of Trimedes or inside of some other genus. And then that name is not available for what the other species that were put in that genus but aren't related. Um, so not everything does going through molecular work, but Earliest, the earlier stuff was, all, of course, all named without any sequencing or, or without microscope work. Um, so, our basically, um, our new public, our new names are published with whatever level of knowledge we have at the point. The other opposite end is um, we have a lot of molecular, or sorry, a lot of envi environmental data. So you can take soil or water samples and sequence and get find new species or new sequences that don't match up with anything <coughs> that's known. So one new area of the code um, naming system is trying to figure out how can we give names to all these environmental samples where we don't have an, we don't have an actual specimen. So we can't save a specimen representing that species, we just have a sequence. <coughs> but we wanna have some system in place. So if somebody finds a sequence, they can put some kind of name on it so that if somebody else finds the same sequence, they can use the same name, and so we can tie these things together. The, the nomenclature code does not require sequencing, 
but some journals that are publishing new fungi names do require or strongly recommend sequencing. So it's up to who's ever publishing and whatever they have to follow to get published. So like I said, you can publish on Index Fugorum. It's, it's an online publishing experiment where you can go in, register a new name and put in the type information, the collection and stuff and put in a sentence or a paragraph or whatever you wanna say, how that species is different. And um, um, some of the new species names, especially microfungi are very, very brief. Um, and I mentioned that some of them are just say, well, look at the DNA sequence, it's different. They don't say, because it's a microfungus, they don't say how it's different. Um, so um, if you have other questions, you can email me or um, look online for that, that page I put up, which is here and I stuck it in the chat. So that's a bunch of links and some videos that have more on this whole topic. So thank you. Thanks, Patrick. That was Thanks. very detailed. I learned a lot about labeling. Thank you very much. Yeah. Take care. See you next month. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Be well. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye.